Well, if you were going to tell the true story of Christmas, that is, of the birth of Christ, where would you begin? Maybe you would start with the story of Mary and Gabriel appearing to her in Luke chapter 1. Maybe you would start in Matthew chapter 1, where the angel comes to Joseph in a dream. Or maybe you would start where Charlie, Bar- Charlie Brown starts, right? In Luke chapter 2, and it came to pass in those days, there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. Anybody like watching Charlie Brown and that? Okay. The only Christmas really movie out there that still tells the Christmas story, I guess. Or some of you might start actually at the birth of Jesus, the shepherds out in the fields, the angels appearing to them. This morning, I would like to consider the Christmas story, maybe from a little different angle, and start at maybe an unusual place, and that is from the very beginning. So we're going to start in Genesis chapter 1. So this is going to be the easiest book of the Bible to find, Genesis chapter 1. So turn with me to Genesis. The Christmas story really begins in Genesis, if you think about it. In Genesis, you can find the seeds of the gospel throughout this book. Then as you continue to go through the scripture, you can see that these seeds germinate and they grow, and eventually they grow into the great magnificent doctrines of the Christian faith that we find in the New Testament. I mean, even consider something like the, the book of Romans, which is that great doctrinal book that is like a tree that has bloomed. But throughout the book, he, uh, Paul, the apostle, takes us back to Genesis and says, look at the roots, look at the origins of these doctrinal truths. And he takes us to Genesis. So what I want to look at the story of Christmas and find the, the seeds of the gospel here in the book of Genesis. And then we'll go through some other books as well and see that here this morning. First, consider with me the very beginning, the beginning of creation. In Genesis 1, we read that the triune God created everything that we see in a period of six days. And then on the sixth day, he created man and woman. He created man and woman in his image. He commissioned them to reflect him. They were to image him in their relationships and in their responsibilities. Look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. The scripture reads in verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So here Adam and Eve were were given the stewardship of his creation, and they were to take those resources and those opportunities and to use them to bring glory to God. And one of those key commands for them was to be fruitful and to produce offspring. Now remember at this time, Adam and Eve were were living, therefore, in a perfect world. They were sinless. They were without sin. Yet later on, we're going to discover in chapter 3 of Genesis that they chose to defy God. They they did not trust his word, and they sinned against God. And therefore, what we're going to see in Genesis 3 is that God gave them what he promised, and he gave them what they desired. And what was that? What is it that they promised, that God promised? Well, God promised that in the day that they sinned against him, they would experience the pain of their sin 
And most prominently, the pain of their sin is death. In fact, look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. In chapter 2, verse 15, we are introduced to God. In chapter 2, we're introduced to him as the Lord, all caps LORD. We've talked about this before. When there's the all caps LORD, we, we recognize that's the Hebrew name for God, Yahweh. And so look at chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord, Yahweh God, took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord, that's Yahweh God, commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So this is chapter two, verse 15 and 16 and 17 here. And notice some important points from this. First of all, notice the one who created them is the one who was to rule them, but also to have fellowship with them. He put them in the garden for a particular reason, and that was so that they would have fellowship with him. They would have a relationship with him. God created man and woman to fellowship with him and have sweet communion. And notice it's interesting that God uses his name here, his personal name, Yahweh. This is also his covenant name. He uses that name to address them. And so look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. You can see he, he desires a relationship with them, but also he makes a promise in verse 17. And what's his promise? Well, this is the second point to notice here, that there's going to be a consequence to their disobedience. And so he says, if, if you ignore my word, if you disobey my law, then you will experience the pain of your sin. You will die. And so God promised them that they would experience the pain of their sin, but also he was going to give them what they desired. And what was it that they desired when they sinned? Well, they desired to live a life apart from God. Isn't that really what sin is when you boil it down to really the essence of sin is living a life independent of God. They, they ignored the word of God, they rejected God, and they decided to live a life independent of him. See, God, God made them to fellowship with him to be connected relationally with him. And they said, no, actually, we want to live life independent of you. I think it's interesting to think about this for us as believers, because this is what God has created us to do. He's redeemed us for this purpose, to, to depend on him, to trust in him. I think probably a good question for us here this morning is, is have you been depending on God this week? Are you living independent of God? Are you living in close relationship with the Lord? And built into the natural order of God's creation was this cause and effect. In other words, if this happens, then this happens. Because this happens, then this happens. You know, for instance, I stand before you today as a man who is losing some hair on top. And I have blue eyes and I have light colored skin and and that's an effect, and I got that from the cause, which was what? My parents passed on their DNA to me, right? Mom and dad, they passed on that DNA to me. When my kids were really young, we had these um, resistant exercise bands. You know what I'm talking about? Like red and black, and you can stretch them, and you can do exercises, and I guess it's supposed to help you get in shape, and obviously it never worked for us, but, well, for me. But, you know, you can take these stretchy bands and you can do things with them. And so, you know, what little kids love to do is, you know, the, the two-year-old takes it and stretches it. And the five-year-old stands on the other side and 
the five-year-old likes to let go, right? <laughs> and I would warn them. I'd say, you know, don't do that because it's going to snap you in the, and then snap it, snap them in the face, right? There's, there's a cause and effect. And the, the, the laws, the natural laws that govern our world were set up by God, and God set up cause and effect. And so he said, listen, if you sin, then you will die. And sure enough, that's what God did. Adam sinned. And Adam's sin not only caused them to experience the pain of death, but also Adam's sin caused all his descendants to inherit his sinful nature as well. So because of Adam's sin, we are sinners by nature and we're sinners by choice. Romans 5, 12 says that sin entered into the world by one man and death through sin. So that's Adam. And in this way, death came upon all people because all people have sinned. So God promises that sin has consequences. So look at Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16 through 19. We're just going to kind of walk through some passages here and, and, and observe some things. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 16 through 19. Here we see God details the consequences of our sin. Because of our sin, there's going to be pain. That's what he tells us here. Some people call this Adam's covenant or the Adamic covenant. In other words, here are promises that God has given to Adam and therefore to all who come after him, all of his descendants. Look at uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. I'm not going to read through all these. I just want you to notice. Notice four promises that's found in these verses. Four promises related to the effects of inherited sin. First of all, the first promise is that you're going to have children. It's going to be a blessing, but it's going to be painful. And so you can see verse 16, he says, in pain shall you bring forth children. So children will be a blessing, but it'll be difficult to have them. How about the second promise is found in verse 16. There will be strife in the marital relationship. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband. There's going to be some battles going on, but he will rule over you. Also, there's going to be suffering. Look at verse 17. The earth is going to be cursed. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So there's going to be suffering and difficulty. And the fourth promise is found in verse 19. For you are dust, into dust you shall return. So these are the four promises God gave related to the effects of our sin. And I, and I, I want to pause here and think about this because these are really some of the big questions that people have in life, right? Why do we have problems in our relationships? Why is there suffering in our world? Why do people die? Why does that have to happen? Why do we have to stay at the graveside of a loved one and pick up dirt and toss it on there and toss it under the casket and say, from dust we came and dust we shall return? Well, the answer is found here in Genesis 3. It's because of the curse of sin. Now you say, maybe you think, you're, think to yourself right now, this is not really a great start to the Christmas story, Pastor Ben. Like, if I were to start the Christmas story, I wouldn't start with this right here. But here's the point. You actually need to know the reason why we need a Christmas story. So you have to know Genesis 1 through 3 in order to realize the promise that God has that he's going to send a son who can save us. So Genesis 3 teaches us that we're broken because of our sin. Our world is broken by our sin. And therefore, we need someone who can come and redeem our world, but more importantly, who can redeem us. That's why at the birth of Jesus, the the angels announced, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. 
So in Genesis 3, we find the hope of Christmas. In fact, look at Genesis 3.15, the verse previous to those couple of verses we just looked at. Notice in Genesis 3.15, or I should say we're going to notice in Genesis 3.15, the promise of this one who will come to save. In fact, if you look just briefly at Genesis 3.8, notice they heard the Lord God walking in the garden. So here God is coming to fellowship with them. That's why he created them. And notice the all caps Lord. So here is Yahweh. It's the personal God. It's also the covenant name for God. He's walking with them. He made a covenant with them. Verse 9, he called to them. He wants to communicate with them. Verse 13, he speaks to the woman. And then down in verse 14, we see that he speaks to the serpent. And it's going to be very important for you to notice this. I keep highlighting this, the covenant name for God, because we're going to see this covenant name for God throughout the text we're looking at this morning. We're going to notice that this covenant name for God is tied to God, God's covenants for us and God personally coming to us. And so look at Genesis 3, 14. The Lord, that's Yahweh, Yahweh God said to the serpent, look at Genesis 3, 15. I will put enmity between you, that's Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, this offspring, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is what many call the first gospel, the proto-evangelium. In this verse, we find the promise that God will not leave humanity to die in their sins. He will send a son a male child to be the Savior. And the rest of this sermon, what I want to do is I want to look at the wonder of Christmas, the wonder of Christmas. And the wonder of Christmas is this. And so if you want to write something down, here's what you can write down because we're going to come back to this over and over throughout this time. The wonder of Christmas is that God kept his promise to provide a son to be the Savior. Here's the wonder of Christmas, that God kept his promise to provide a son to be the Savior. I want you to imagine Saturday morning and a little toddler shooting out of bed, going into that room where there's that Christmas tree and his or her eyes are big, filled with wonder as they consider Christmas. What, what is it? What is the wonder of Christmas? What is the wonder in that child's eyes? Well, I hope that the focus that we have as Christians isn't in the things that we have, I hope it's not in the, even the food that we eat or even real th- the family. I mean, family is good and food is good and the things are not bad. I hope our, the wonder of Christmas is actually found in the person of Jesus Christ, right? Because presents will break and they'll soon be forgotten. Do you remember what you got for Christmas last year? Maybe. How about the year before that? Or, or, or food is going to be eaten and eventually eliminated. Family memories are captured on phones but sometimes they're not even viewed again. When's the last time you went through your videos from last year of opening all those presents up? Right, so those things will pass away. And they're not bad things, but they'll pass away. But really the true wonder of Christmas should be that we remember that Jesus is the promised one who came to be the Savior. So in Genesis 3.15, we find the promise that God would send a son through the seed of a woman. Notice Genesis 3.15 speaks of the woman's offspring. The Hebrew word behind offspring, or your translation might say seed, it's singular in the Hebrew. 
Sometimes it does refer to an offspring, a person who will have an offspring that's plural, in other words, a, a group of people. But here, particularly, the grammar of this verse indicates that the woman will give an offspring of a singular person. In other words, the offspring will be a person, a man. So this woman will bring forth an offspring who will defeat Satan, and in the process, he will be hurt himself. So look at verse 15. This offspring shall bruise your, Satan's head, and you, Satan, shall bruise this offspring's, his heel. This is the first prophecy of Scripture. Isn't this amazing? Think about this. This is the first prophecy of Scripture. And the first prophecy of the Bible is a foreshadowing of the virgin birth and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing to think about? And so here we see the, the story of Christmas starts. It's foreshadowed. It's, it's foretold. Notice in verse 15, and here's the hint of the virgin birth. It's not explicit, but it's a hint of it. The prophecy says that this Savior will come from the seed of the woman. Now, that's, that's interesting. Notice, notice in verse 15, he doesn't say, I'll put enmity between you, Satan, and the man, and between your offspring and his offspring. No, he doesn't use the masculine. He uses the feminine. This is, this is very odd if you were going to be writing this as a regular person. If you're talking about genealogies, you typically say the father begat this son. You know, the father had this son. The father had this son. You typically don't say the mother had this child. In most societies, it's understood that the offspring comes from the male, not the female. So something else, something else is going on here. This is not a normal offspring. The Savior has a special type of birth. And again, this is a hint at the virgin birth. So the first prophecy of the Bible has a mother who begats a son. And then also notice in verse 15 that the one born of this woman will save people by crushing Satan and his greatest weapon. What's his greatest weapon? It's death. So crushing Satan, the power of death, and in the process, Satan will bruise the heel of the Savior. So again, this is a clear prophecy of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And then last notice that this, in this verse, there's this struggle between Satan and the woman and the offspring. And this is constant struggle we're going to see throughout the scriptures and throughout redemptive history of Satan opposing God's promised one. He's really coming after the ancestral line of the Messiah. What we're going to do this morning is walk through a couple texts, and I want you to notice there's this constant battle where Satan is coming against God's promised line, God's promised Messiah, and he's trying to thwart God in his plan. But God will not and cannot and was not stopped, right? Because he's the sovereign God. God providentially rules over history, and he's so powerful that he actually takes Satan's plots and his plans and what he means for evil, and he turns it around into good and provides a savior for us. So do this. Go to Genesis chapter 4. And again, we're just going to walk through a couple of texts and show you this. Genesis 4, this is when the, the second, or the, the first, I should say, the first child is born into this world. This is Cain. Genesis 4.1. Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. So notice again, Eve credits the Lord, all caps Lord, that's Yahweh, for the provision of a baby. 
And Eve thought that Cain here would be that promised offspring of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. So let me ask this question. Was Cain that promised offspring who would come and save mankind? Well, obviously not, right? I mean, we see that there in the text. And why not? Why was it that Cain could not save mankind? Because he had inherited the same nature of his father. And so here what we see is a demonstration of an offspring who is unable to save himself or anyone else because he has the same nature of his father. Now we're going to jump to Galatians. Go to Galatians chapter 3. So New Testament, you're going to zoom all the way forward. We're still going to keep in the same timeline of historical redemptive history. So we're going to stay um, in the story of Genesis, but we're going to be in Galatians. So Galatians chapter 3. And I want us to notice what Paul, the apostle, said about Abraham. Remember Abraham and Sarah? Abraham and Sarah were barren. She was not able to have children. But God promised them that they would have a son. And this son would have would be a blessing to many nations and there would be many people that would come after him. And if you were to study Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 17, you would see in those texts that God makes covenant with Abraham. We call this the Abrahamic covenant. And actually, and I'm not going to look at it this morning, but if you went and studied, you'll notice that God uses his covenant name. He uses the name Yahweh. It's his personal covenant name. But then in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul the Apostle lets us know that when God made this covenant about the offspring of Abraham, that God wasn't just speaking about the children of Israel. He was speaking about a particular one to come. Look at Galatians 3, verse 16. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And again, you could look back at Genesis 12 and 6, 17 and see that. And it, it does not say to offsprings, in other words, not plural, referring to many, but referring to one, into your offspring. Another one person. Who is that? Who is Christ? So according to Paul, the Holy Spirit specifically used the singular form of offspring or seed, if your translation says that, because the Holy Spirit was giving a prophecy of Jesus. In other words, when he was saying that you're going to have an offspring that's going to come, he wasn't just talking about Israel. He was saying, there's a particular one who is going to come. And again, this is, a, this is pointing to the wonder of Christmas that God would keep his promise to provide a son to be the Savior. And again, remember how Satan tried to thwart the plan of God because they weren't having a son. Sarah was old. She couldn't have children, humanly speaking. And so what did they decide to do? They said, well, Abraham, why don't you get with Hagar and have a baby with her? And sure enough, they did. And that baby's name was Ishmael. But that wasn't God's plan, right? They didn't trust God's plan. But God still demonstrated that he was the one who was going to perpetuate the line of the promised one. And so he allowed Sarah eventually to have a son. And his name was what? Was Isaac. And so go with me back to Genesis. Go to Genesis chapter 49. Gonna, this is kind of like a sword, sword drill this morning here. If you did that when you were in elementary, hopefully uh, you learned your books of the Bible. Genesis chapter 49. So remember, you had Abraham and Sarah, and they gave birth to, Sarah gave birth to Isaac, and then Isaac and Rebekah got married, and they gave birth to Jacob, and then Jacob and Rachel and Leah, and Jacob and Leah gave birth to 
Judah. And so if we look in Genesis chapter 49, what we see here is that Jacob prophesies that Judah, one of his sons, will, will be the one that will continue the line of the Messiah, the promised one. Look at Genesis 49.1. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, so gather around my sons, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. So he's going to say, listen, I got a prophecy. Here's a prophecy about what's going to happen in the days to come. So he talks to all of his sons. And look at verse 10. We see what he says specifically to Judah. He says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah and the ruler's staff from between his feet. In other words, this is a prophecy the royal line of David will come through Judah. Therefore, the coming savior, the coming one, would be a king who would come through this family line. We looked at that last week, really the last couple weeks, when we looked at Ruth. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 15. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 15. So you can see this, this thread throughout the New Test or throughout the Old Testament of this one who's going to come. We see it gets narrowed down, so now it's to Judah through Judah. Deuteronomy 8:15, we see Moses. And tucked into the law of Moses is a promise that the Savior is also going to be a prophet, like Moses is. Now you think about Moses, he seems like he could be the Savior, right? I mean, here's a guy who delivers with courage the people of Israel from Egypt. And in fact, even, even Moses tries to propitiate for the people. If you remember that in Exodus, where they, they worship the golden calf, and then Moses comes down, he's brokenhearted. He actually breaks the tablets, goes back up, and God says, I'm gonna destroy them. And Moses says, no, no, Lord, no, Lord, I'll take their place. He says in Exodus 32, 32, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, blot me out of your book, that you have written. In other words, in other words, send me to hell so that they can be in your book and still be your children. So that didn't work though, right? God said, no, that's not possible. That doesn't work. Why is that? Because Moses is also a son of Adam, right? He's, he inherited the sinful nature as well. He is unable, not only just by his works, but by his nature to be able to redeem those people. So he's not the promised one, but look in Deuteronomy 18 to 15. And again, we see, when God makes a promise, many times he uses his covenant name, Deuteronomy 18, 15. Did I say the wrong passage? I said eight, didn't I? I'm sorry, we're in, eight, we're in 18, sorry. 18, 15. We see him use his covenant name again. And the Lord, so Yahweh God, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. This is Moses speaking from among you, from among the Israelites, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. So Moses wasn't that prophet, but he said, but there is a prophet coming. He's gonna speak the words of God. In fact, out late, in fact later on, we'll find out that he actually is the word of God. And then go with me to Ruth chapter four, verse 13. You should have this one pretty well marked in your Bible, right? We were just here the last couple of weeks. But I want you to notice a very intriguing verse in Ruth. Again, this is the time of the judges. This is the time when people were out of control. You had guys like Joshua, and then after them, men, there were judges, some women actually as well, that were judges that came in. And they were trying to constrain the sin of the people. But could they do it? 
They couldn't do it, right? In fact, they couldn't even constrain their own sin. You know, enter in Samson, right? And so everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They couldn't save their people, again, because they had that sin nature as well. But then we see this hint here. We see this hint of, of, of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It seems like the line of Judah was threatened, but God provided a male heir from the tribe of Judah. Look at Ruth 4.13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord, the Lord, so there you go, there's a covenant name for God, gave her conception, and she bore a son. Now notice that. She bore a son. What's interesting is in these genealogies, even at the end of Ruth there, you see that it's the men who begat, but here you see that she's the one doing that. And this sounds a lot like Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I read a, a commentator that, that really draw my, drew my attention to this. His name is Daniel Block, and he wrote this. Remarkably, this blessing treats the seed as a gift that Yahweh grants Boaz through Ruth. And this identification of the seed casts her into the role of Eve in Genesis 3.15. And of course, that Bo, um, Obed is not the, the seed of Genesis 3.15, but what he's saying here is this is a reminder that there will be an offspring that will come and that will redeem the people of the Lord. Now go with me to 2 Samuel 7. I'm really testing you in your understanding of where the books of the Bible are. 2 Samuel 7, I'll give you a tip. It's after 1 Samuel, okay? Before the kings. 2 Samuel 7, this is actually about 100 years after Ruth and Israel. Remember, they demanded a king. They wanted a king, so what did they look for? They looked for someone, a lot like a lot of college girls, someone that's tall, dark, and handsome. Sorry for those of us that are short, white, and anyways. But they picked who? They picked Saul, right? Saul, but there was a problem with Saul. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. And they picked him, so eventually that changed, and the Lord removed him, and he anointed David, who was of the tribe of Judah. And look in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and here we see God's covenant with David, and therefore his descendants. So we call this the Davidic covenant. And again, so you see this covenant, God's going to make a promise. What, what name do you think God's going to use for himself? It's his personal name. It's his covenant name, Yahweh. 2 Samuel 7, 4, but the same night, the word of the Lord, Yahweh, came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says Yahweh, thus says the Lord God. And in verse 12, we see this covenant he made. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and then notice this, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So God promised David that he would produce a king and this kingdom would reign, this king would reign forever. Who is able to reign forever? Only God. So this is a reference to this coming one who would be an eternal king. And then the last Old Testament text, I promise, Isaiah chapter seven. Go to Isaiah chapter seven. And again, in Isaiah, we see that the line of Judah, and now more narrowed down, the line of David, is threatened. It, look, it looks like it might be cut off completely, and therefore there'll be no more hope for this promised one to come. And one thing I'm trying to draw your attention to as you go through the Old Testament, that there's, there's this fear 
that the line of the promised one is going to be cut off. Why is there that fear? Well, because that's what Satan's mission is to do. He's trying to stop the Savior from coming. And so we see in Isaiah chapter, four, uh, Isaiah chapter 7, we see that God is faithful and he promises no Ahaz. It might look like this is going to happen, but I promise you and your family line, I should say your family line will not be cut off. So look at Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 10. Again, the Lord, okay, so again, what name will God use to say I'm going to make a promise to the house of David? Yahweh. Again, Yahweh spoke to Ahaz, the king of Judah. So he's going to make a promise, and he's going to make this promise down in verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself, which is interesting, that's Adonai. In other words, God, Adonai talks about God's power, so he's powerful enough to do this. He will give a sign. What's the sign? The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which we talked about this morning, which is God with us. Now, we could go through Old Testament text after Old Testament text and see this, this wonder of Christmas that God promised to provide a son to be the Savior. But let's land the plane. Should we do that? So go to Matthew chapter 1. This was where we were last week, but I want to highlight a few more ideas from this text. Matthew wrote the gospel, his gospel, to demonstrate that Jesus was the promised Messiah who was promised to come. But he was that one that was promised to come. And the first way he did, did this by, was by listing his genealogy, the genealogy of Jesus. And the genealogy of Jesus shows the faithfulness of God and how he kept his promise to send this son who would be our savior. I'm not going to read through this whole genealogy, partly for sake of time, partly for the sake of me not messing up the words. But I want you to notice some things. Just, just look through this genealogy. First of all, you'll notice some of the names we talked about this morning. But also I want you to observe how each father, or sometimes it's a grandfather or a great-grandfather, each father begets or he fathers a son. So actually, let's start in Matthew 1.1. We'll just read the first two verses. So Matthew 1.1 says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. There we have David, the, remember the Davidic covenant. Then you have the son of Abraham. Remember the um, Abrahamic covenant. In verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. And it just keeps going on. It goes through the genealogy of Jesus. And notice the phrase, was the father of. Now, some of you might have a different translation. I might say begat or something like that. But this comes from the Greek word genao. And genao is a word that means, again, begat, the father of. And if you look down from verse, verse 2 down to verse 16, you'll see this word used over and over and over again to, to speak of an offspring that's produced by a father. But then something remarkable changes in verse 16. Notice verse 16. Jacob, the father of, or Gena'o, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. That's actually the same word, Gena'o, who is called the Christ. So all these fathers begat these sons, but notice Mary begat Jesus. Isn't that amazing to think about? And it was interesting as well, this is kind of hidden behind the, the English here. If you look in the Greek, that, those Greek words, genao, from verse, uh, verse 2 to verse 16, 
are aorist, in other words, it's a point in time, and it's active. It's something they do. In other words, the fathers are the ones who are perpetuating the family line. But then here in verse 16, in regard to Mary, it's actually a passive. It's Mary is the one who begets Jesus, but it's something happening to her. In other words, someone is causing her to conceive this baby. And of course, who is that? We learn in verse 18 that it's the Holy Spirit. What's interesting, if you study the life of Joseph and Mary, that Joseph was called Mary's husband, but she was never called, or he, I'm sorry, he was never called Jesus' father. Joseph was never called Jesus' father. And why is that? Why was he never called his father? Well, because Jesus was not conceived by Joseph. The conception of Jesus was a miracle done by the Holy Spirit without the help of a human male. In fact, if you look in verse 16, you can see that Joseph and Mary were betrothed, which in this time meant that they had committed to the covenant of marriage, but they were not living together yet. They were not physically intimate yet. Look down in verse 18. We see that they're committed to each other in marriage. They're, they're separate, you know, living separate. They're, they're not intimate yet. But yet Mary is found with child. Verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, so they're committed to each other, they're living in purity. Before they came together, she was found to be with child. And if you just stop right there, that's a scandalous verse, right? But he says, from the Holy Spirit. So this text is clear that they were not physically intimate before their wedding ceremony. You can see that in verse 18. It's before they came together. So you see these clear references to the fact that this girl was a virgin. So this this conception was a a, a virgin conception. This is what the Bible teaches. A lot of people... A lot of churches, frankly, if you go around to some churches or you go around to some seminaries and you ask them, what do you believe about the virgin birth of Jesus Christ? And they'll say, it's a myth. It's a joke. They don't believe in it. Now, it might be shocking to some of you in here, but there's, the reality is there's, there's churches in Los Angeles, there's churches in Simi Valley, and they actually believe that, that Jesus was not born of a virgin. One preacher said it this way, define the virgin birth and you will lose your mind. Deny the virgin birth, and you will lose your soul. The virgin birth is an essential doctrine for us to believe. And it is difficult to explain, isn't it? In fact, it's impossible to biologically explain because it's a miracle from God. But we believe it by faith. We believe it because the word of God says it's true. And it was actually Mary's testimony as well. You don't have to turn there, but if you were to look in Luke chapter 1, verse 26, you would see that the angel Gabriel said, and the scripture says here, that she was a virgin. Scripture says over and over that she was a virgin. In fact, Mary's own testimony says that she was a virgin. The angel says, behold, you're going to conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. And Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I'm a, I'm a virgin? And the angel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So so God did a miracle within Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit to cause her to conceive without a man. And can you imagine that most people didn't believe her? And neither did Joseph. 
And he was a righteous man. He loved the Lord. He trusted the Lord. But yet, this is not believable, is it? But then the Holy Spirit, or then the angel came in a dream and convinced him that it was a miracle of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 20. So he's pondering his best options here. He wants to be kind to her. So he's looking to divorce her, to put her away privately. Matthew 1, 20 says, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So the angel visited him in a dream and convinced him what Mary said was true. Mary was a virgin. The baby in her had been conceived by the Holy Spirit. And notice that word in verse Verse 20 there, conceived. And that's our word, ganao, again. And again, it's a passive. And so in other words, Mary conceived by whom? By the Holy Spirit. And, and so it's, honestly, if someone denies the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, they're denying the word of God, right? And that's, and that's why we hold firm on that. But you might ask yourself the question, Pastor Ben, does it really matter though? I mean, come on, why is it such a, really a big deal? Why is it important? to have this virgin conception. Well, if Jesus was born of Joseph, then Joseph would have passed on to him the sinful nature of Adam. In other words, Cain couldn't save. Why? Because he had his father's sinful nature. Moses couldn't save. Why? Because he had his father's sinful nature. No one else can save. Why? Because they have their father's sinful nature. You can't save yourself. Why? Because you have your father's sinful nature, and your father, that is, we're speaking of Adam. See, many people in this world, they try to save themselves or look to some other human person, maybe in history or maybe living, that can save them. No one can save you because they're all of Adam. Jesus was the only one born of the Holy Spirit. Jesus had a holy nature because his heavenly father is holy, and the Holy Spirit was the one who caused him to be conceived. Because Jesus was born from above, he was born as a perfect human, and therefore he could live a holy, righteous life. Because he was born from above, he was able to be our perfect, holy Savior. And the scripture says he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet he was what? Without sin. He conquered sin by living a righteous life. Because he was born from above, he could die on the cross, and offer himself up as a sinless, spotless sacrifice in our place. Because of the virgin birth, we can have a holy one who can step in our place and who has taken the wrath of God for us. You see, the, the virgin birth is necessary for us to be able to understand and believe the gospel. So look at verse 21. She will bear a son... You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So in other words, these, the, the virgin birth is a, fulfilled, is a prophecy fulfilled of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, but also of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And then verse 24, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, and he knew her not until after she had given birth to a son. 
The Roman Catholic Church has a doctrine called the perpetual virginity of Jesus. And look, if you look at that verse right there, it actually goes against that, right? It shows that that's false because she actually was a virgin and she was, uh, Jesus was conceived in the Virgin Mary. But then after they were married there they, and after they had the baby, Joseph and Mary lived like a normal couple and they had children. But then notice the end of verse 25 because this is the, the special climax of the text. And he called his name Jesus. Have you ever noticed how important it is in these biblical texts, especially for the Christmas text, that they call his name Jesus? Mary was commanded, call his name Jesus. Joseph was commanded, call his name Jesus. And here again, it's highlighted, so they called his name Jesus. Why is it so important that his name was to be Jesus? What does the name Jesus mean? Jesus is actually the, the New Testament way of saying the Old Testament, Joshua. And the Hebrew word for Jesus is Yeshua. It's Yahshua. Shua means save. Yah means what? Yahweh, God. Yahweh saves. Jesus' name literally means Yahweh saves. Remember all those times that I said, notice how the scripture used the name Yahweh to promise that God would send a savior? Well, in the very name of Jesus, we find Yahweh's promise, Yahweh saves. And why were they call him Jesus? Because why? Verse 21, he will save his people from their sins. Now do a little bit of logic with me. Yahweh, God, is the only one who can save. Jesus means Yahweh saves. And they were to call him Jesus. Why? Because He's the one who would save his people from their sins. Conclusion, Jesus is Yahweh who saves. Jesus is God in the flesh who came to be born of a virgin, live a life of holiness, to die in your place and to be raised in victory. Remember the angel said, I bring you good news of great joy for all people. What's the good news? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the what? The Lord. He's Christ Yahweh. He's Yahweh. He's Yahweh who saves. And the question this morning is this for all of us. Are you trusting in Jesus? What does that mean? You're trusting that Jesus alone can save you. And friend, if you're in here without Jesus Christ, his call to you is to come to him. To be saved. You notice in all these songs we're singing, come all you faithful. We're going to sing a song in a moment. Call you, come all you unfaithful. All these songs, the Christmas songs, have these words of come to Christ. Come to Christ. And that's the call. The call is an invitation to trust in Jesus as your Savior. Question is, how can I be saved? How does he save me? Acts 16.31. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. That's a promise from God. That's a promise he has for those who turn to him in faith. If you want to be saved, turn to Christ. He is the Lord who saves. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that we can think about Christmas and celebrate Christmas more than what most of the world, most of the, most of the people in the world 
how they think about it and what they celebrate. For many people, it's just things that they're going to get and people they're going to be around and food they're going to eat. But Lord, we are celebrating that you sent someone, your son, to save us from our sins. And he's, he was not just any old person. He was born of a virgin, supernaturally conceived, the Holy One, who lived a perfect life, who lived a life we could not live, who died in our place, and who was raised victorious from the grave. Lord, we are celebrating this season. We're celebrating you. We're celebrating Jesus. Yah saves. Yahweh saves. Lord, I pray that our hearts will be knit to the Savior this Christmas season. May we be tethered and tied to you and find our hope in Jesus Christ, we pray in Jesus' name.